The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Those are verses 4 to 7 of Psalm 11 which along with Psalm 10 are the, vo- are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. So the, uh, you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are in the book of Jonah today, the first 17 verses of that book, uh, also in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 40 to 56, and then continuing the trial of Paul in um Acts 26, verse 24 through 27, verse 8. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And this word great is going to come up again and again and again. Now, Nineveh is a great city, obviously. It's a huge city. And, And you would think, because Jonah so hates the people there, that this would be like a dream come true to get the call to go and give this word against the Babylonians, you would have thought would have been the greatest thing that could ever have happened in Jonah's entire career. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he decides, I'm going to get out of Dodge, and I'm going to head out. Instead of going to Nineveh, I'm going in the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is the second time we've seen this idea of fleeing the presence of the Lord. Did Jonah not understand who God is? Was he completely mistaken in his belief? I mean, it's really odd that that this prophet, who certainly knows the history of Israel, who knows that God was with them in Egypt, knows that he was with them in the wilderness for 40 years, know that he was with them every step of the way in the conquest of the land, knows that God was with them in Babylon. So how, how does he make the mistake of, of believing that he can flee from the presence of the Lord? It's just very, very strange that he would have chosen to do this. But the the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So there's that word great again, a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. This tempest is the storm. So there's a wind and also a storm that threatened to break the ship up. Then the mariners, the people who were accustomed to being on the sea, were afraid And each cried out to his God. That tells me something about how severe this storm was that these guys who were sailors are suddenly really afraid and each crying out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. I mean, this storm is so great that they're afraid the ship is going to break up, that the The sailors are afraid of this storm, and yet here Jonah is laying in the inside of the ship, sound asleep, sound asleep, not even disturbed by any of this. And and interestingly, if you look at modern commentaries, what you'll see is Jonah was so afraid, or or not afraid, but depressed, that he fell into this deep sleep. I I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Um, 
I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with depression that Jonah has run away here. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So everybody's crying out to their own gods. Get up and call out to your God too. Join us in the futile efforts we've been making. And then they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? So they believe, somehow or another, that if they cast these lots, that that will reveal to them why this is happening and whose fault it is, because they, they believe that it's somebody's fault. Again, I've said this a million different times, that, that there's always a sense of it's somebody's fault. There's not the, the belief that this is a random thing. No, it's a very purposeful thing. And, and whose fault is it this is happening? It's, we've always got to find the person to blame. But here the Lord lets the lot fall on Jonah, and then they ask him these questions. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, which means river crosser. Interesting in this particular instance, instance, as they're trying to cross the sea. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he says he's the God of everything. He's the God of heaven, and he made everything that is. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now was Jonah proposing that they kill him by throwing him into the sea? Is that the way he thought this would end? Or did did he actually kind of believe that, that it would be okay? But he'd rather, in any case, be thrown into the sea than to go to Babylon. And so he, he, he suggests you throw me into the sea. Well, these guys aren't murderers. That's not their thing. And so they rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So it was tempestuous, and then it got more and more tempestuous, and now it's more and more even more <laughs> tempestuous against them. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They don't want to commit murder. If that's the only solution, dude, we're going to try and get back to where we started. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they believed that God was in charge. This God that Jonah told about, they believed that he was in charge, and, and they said, don't, don't hold it against us for throwing this guy in the sea. Don't let us die because of him. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. I mean, it reminds me so much of Jesus falling asleep in the boat. The disciples are panicked. They have to get him up and say, can't you see we're perishing? Here they use the same language. Let us not perish for this man's life. It's the other way around with Jesus. And so what happens? Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, and they grow calm here. As soon as they throw Jonah into the sea, it ceased its raging, and then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Why? Because it stopped. They knew who was in charge, 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. There's that word great again. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There's no whale involved here. It's a fish, just so you'll know. <laughs> in the gospel today, when Jesus returned from being over in the country of the Gerasenes, the crowd welcomed him. On the other side, who welcomed him? A naked guy with demons. Here, the crowd welcomes him, for they were all waiting for him. They knew where he'd come from. They saw where the boat came from. They might not have seen what happened over on the other side, but they knew that he had come from the uh, country of the Gerasenes, which is going to make him ritually impure. If they knew about the tombs, demons, pigs, all that stuff, that no, that <laughs> they wouldn't. They would have initially wanted to say, ah, "We can't have anything to do with him," because he's so defiled. But there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. So Jesus has been begged by demons, begged by the man, begged by the people of the Gerasenes. Now he's being begged by the synagogue ruler, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, so this crowd follows him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which makes her completely ritually impure. This woman should be avoiding contact with other people. She should be letting people know what her situation is. We have to, at some level, believe that she, that they do know, though, who she is, because she would have been an outcast for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So she's done everything she can possibly do. She's completely broke because of this. She's got one more possibility. And so she's going to take this Hail Mary. And so she comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? Well, they all denied it. And then Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, anybody in the crowd could have bumped into you. It's impossible to have, to have figured out who might have done that. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So the, the touching then somehow brought something out of Jesus that he recognized had gone out. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. What, what, a, what a wonderful, beautiful moment this is. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She couldn't have wanted any more from that encounter than the healing, but also the confirmation that it was her faith that did this. Now, she had put her faith and her trust and her money in these physicians whom she had consulted prior to this, and now she gave the Hail Mary and did the one thing that she's not supposed to do, which is touch someone. But then, as I've said before, the math on all this stuff is really odd because they, they believe that you can, that everybody starts in a certain kind of commonplace. Things that, that are then ritually defiled are over on the other side. And when you touch defiled things, you become defiled. It goes only that way. You have contracted their defilement. So here she touches Jesus, and he doesn't become defiled. She becomes whole. So there's got to be then, well, a third category that's heretofore never happened before, and that is holiness. So there's common, defiled, 
And now there's holiness. When you touch holiness, you become clean. You become restored in every way. And so nobody would have been able to figure this out. It wouldn't have made any sense because it would have looked like Jesus was defiled by that contact. But if the woman's made whole and healed, then hmm, he's a category that we don't have a category for. No man's ever been like this before. It's not how it works. While he was still speaking to the woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead, don't trouble the teacher anymore. You know, so, okay, we believed that there was something that Jesus could do until, well, she's dead now and there's nothing he can do. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, don't fear, only believe, and she'll be well. In other words, it's not, it's not a lost cause. It's not a lost cause at all. You just believe. You keep believing whether they do or not. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, don't weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. I think we know how to figure that out. There's no pulse. There's no heartbeat. There's no nothing. She's not breathing. We know the difference between sleeping and dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Now, this spirit returned thing, I've talked about this multiple times with Lazarus, that there's, so there's a Jewish belief that this seems to be affirmed in this passage, by the way, and it seems to be affirmed by, by Jesus waiting to go to Lazarus, actually, uh, that the spirit hung around and waited for the body to revive. And, and if the body revived, then the spirit came back in and, and you became a living being. So her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, I'm not quite sure <laughs> how you going to hide that because there were people who knew she was dead. There were people gathered around and there was a crowd that followed him. So I'm not sure that telling them not to tell anybody was really going to accomplish very much. In the Acts lesson today, he was saying these things, Paul was saying these things in his defense. Festus, who was the governor, remember this is a trial before Agrippa, who is the king, to determine what to do about Paul because he had appealed to the emperor. So we have three levels of authority. We've got emperor, we have king, and we have governor, and Festus is the governor. And he says with a loud voice, so he calls this out loudly. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I mean, so the belief is, Festus says, you've, you've gone round the bend, Paul. You're claiming to have visions and hear voices from heaven. I, I think you've lost it, buddy. I, th- I think maybe you've learned so much, because he's, he's recognizing that Paul is a learned man. He says, but it's caused you to go out of your mind, because th- that's a crazy story, Paul. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Felix. Festus, he's, he's, he's uh, saluting the, 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 the rank, not the man here, when he says most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. And that's one of the things that we need to, to, to be able to deal with correctly in the body of Christ. And that is when we say we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we believe that based on the authority of witnesses who saw it, who reported this at the time that it happened, when it would have been easy for people to deny it and put this whole thing to bed very quickly. So when we say we believe these things, we believe it on good authority. 
And, and so when he says, I speak these things true and rational words, what he's saying is, this stuff happened. It's true. It's absolutely true. People with me witnessed this. They also witnessed my blindness. They also witnessed my healing. These are true things, things that happened in the presence of witnesses. And I'm speaking perfectly rationally here. For the king knows about these things. So Agrippa knows about these things, he says, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's not been some hidden thing that happened way out here. I know that he knows this story already. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. He said, you know, I'm saying these things so that you'll believe. I want you to become like me. I want you to become exactly like this. People who are convinced of the truth, who know these things to be true, who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have therefore hope in the one who was resurrected from the dead. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. So Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice... Agrippa's sister, wife, and those who were with them, sitting with them. And then when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, the man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And when it was decided that we, remember Luke is now part of the action. He's This is firsthand account that he's giving of, of these proceedings. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy to go to Rome, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So he's, he's Paul's, or Luke's saying, you can go ask this guy. He, there, there's a specific guy in the Augustan cohort named Justice who, who was, our, was conducting us and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. So they, they landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. In other words, this, this was going to be a difficult journey. We had, to, we had to kind of heave towards the land so that, because we couldn't get out to sea because the winds were too strong. We couldn't go out there. So we had to kind of hug the coast as we went along. So they're going to make slow progress. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, now Cilicia is where Paul's from, and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia, which is in Turkey. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, sailing for Italy and put us on board. So there you go. You'll be there. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snittus. And as the wind didn't allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. So Paul is has submitted himself to earthly authorities all along the way. First, we've, we've had the, the Roman governor 
And then a second, well, first we had a tribune, really, but he didn't submit himself so much there as he was submitted. <laughs> um, and then to the governor, and then the second governor, and then the king, and now this soldier who is in the August, the centurion, who is giving them safe conduct. And he's there to protect them. But he's also there to make sure Paul gets to Rome. So he, he's constantly submitting to the authorities. And, and it's important that we understand how to do that. We do it without being obsequious. We, we stand humbly before the Lord and boldly before men. And, and it's, it's incumbent on us as Christians to understand that reality, that we know who is ultimately in charge. In the same way, the sailors found that out with Jonah. And in the same way that the synagogue ruler found out who really was. He's not a teacher. Nope, he's way more than that. And he sees his little girl return to him from the dead. He understands who the real authority is in these situations.